Hello everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of the This Nintendo Life podcast. Uh, my name's MBZ, and uh, I'm joined, as always, by Bali. Bali, how are you doing today? Hi, MBZ. I'm very good. I'm very happy to talk about a game I actually completed a long time ago, but um, it's been it's been a while. It has, yeah. We... So this is, if you haven't noticed by the title or anything, uh, this is the Xenoblade Chronicles spoiler cast, which we have been alluding to for many months now. Uh, and we actually got to start on recording this a while ago, and we were going to go through it like in this minute detail, like ridiculous thing. And we had recorded like two or three segments, and they were each like half an hour long. And we hadn't even got halfway through the story, and we're like, well, "This is never good. This is going to be an endless thing." And we ended up rambling a lot, and it was just kind of a bit of a mess. Yeah. So we decided to cut that off, and now we're getting very close to the release of the sequels in Xenoblade Chronicles X. So we thought, "Hey, what better time than to do it now? Uh, talk about all the stuff that we enjoyed from Xenoblade. Uh, our memories may be a little bit rusty on this stuff. Uh, I did actually watch Chugger Conroy's Let's Play of this earlier this year, and so I have a bit better kind of memory, but." Um, yeah, it's been a few months, so some details may have slipped our mind. Uh, nevertheless, we're going to endeavour to do our best to talk about Xenoblade in as much uh, detail as possible uh, without taking up too much time and uh, give our thoughts on the story stuff and uh, I guess also like other things in general about the game. Um, just talk a bunch about Xenoblade. So. And talk a little yeah, bit about the next one that's coming, Xenoblade sure. X. Yeah, we could have a bit of theories about how it may kind of fit in. Um, so, Bali... What were the things that stood out to you story-wise? Should we start with the big one at the start? I think Fiora's death is like... That is a huge um, twist. Not I, Maybe it is a twist. I'm not sure if you would put it that way. But you do control her. Like She is actually a character that they give you control over at the start. You think she's going to be a part of your party. You spent a long time using and learning Fiora, which I thought was funny. Not a, not a long time, but like, yes, I, I, w- I was specifically made a point of using all three characters at the start to get used to all three of them um, and learn their ins and outs and how Fiora worked and stuff. And then I, I, I was using her at the point, I believe, at which she died. So I was a bit like, oh, OK. But I mean, yeah. in terms <laughs> of storytelling, I think I think the whole the whole resurrection story um has become such a trope, you know, in so yeah. many... I mean, obviously the Bible was the first, but then so many stories, everything from Star Wars, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, all these epic fantasy alternate universe stories all have a bit of resurrection. Doctor Who, of course. Um, I mean, so Doctor I Who is built like on resurrection. You know? Precisely. <laughs> so I think that it's almost... You almost have to have some sort of resurrection story in any epic story these days in order for it to you know function and i i think the way they do it in this story in particular is it's a bit different it's not that cookie cutter you know it it is unusual the way that she comes back and the way that she doesn't fully come back it's all quite weird yeah no it's uh it's an interesting one i I have to say did you see it coming bali like were you um hot on the heels of the twist that was to come later that she was actually alive and had been turned into uh, a mechon or overall if i had to put money on it at that point in time i would have said yes she is coming back because you never see characters introduced 
um, in a way where, you know, the, the whole story, her relationship with um, Shulk is just so shoved in your face that the idea of killing her off and her not coming back would suggest that it would have been a much darker story than I believe Xenoblade in general is. Don't get me wrong, there are very yeah. dark elements in the story, including her death and numerous deaths, deaths later on. But um, I think I I could in general see her coming back in one form or another. She certainly came back in a way I wasn't really expecting. So that, Oh yeah, that absolutely. No, for for me, it was uh, definitely much more impactful uh, when we get to the Prison Island stuff and she's revealed, mainly because of the uh, out-of-structure way I played this game. And we've talked in the past about how Xenoblade is a game that I, like, took year breaks from, like, multiple times. <laughs> and as a result, lots of details that I think you picked up on story-wise were just went straight over my head, such as... Uh, Mumkar in the beginning dying and then you seeing Metal Face and having the similar claws and that kind of maybe leading you on. Were you more um, conv- not convinced, were you more uh, surprised or less surprised by the Mumkar reveal uh, as opposed to Fiora? Um, phew, hard to say. I was kind of expecting both of them in a way. Uh, I'd say most of the surprises in the story were elsewhere. Um, okay. I, I mean, I'll get to those later on, but I, I definitely associated. I obviously knew the character Metal Face from Smash Brothers and the first few cutscenes, right. and the claws are so distinctive. And do you and think that, that those like, voice samples in Smash Brothers led you on to the fact that it was Mumcar because it is kind of the same voice acting going on later on? Yeah, it's that real. English accent sort of it's a very distinctive tone um, that definitely played a, a role it was the combination of that and the claws and then and in the, exactly the same way as predicting Fiora returning they emphasised this idea of the Monado not working on faced Mechon and, right, and I love how that ties into the mechanics as well. Like, not only is it yeah. a story beat that because there are human parts inside this machine that it's, it's not going to work, but when you fight them, like, you have to do the topple. You have to make sure that they are uh, knocked down to the ground before you deal damage with them. And I think that's a neat touch that even in the playing of the game, that story beat ties in. Yeah, and I think that story beat is just kind of... If you do have an inkling about Fiora or Mumkar, it kind of reveals, oh, yeah, they're faced Mechon, or they're, tr- they're going to be faced Mechon, or I guess in Fiora's case, she sort of, how do you explain it, like, breaks away from it or whatever. But with Mumkar, I think it was definitely quite clear because um, there's a number of sort of cinematic angles in the cutscenes and things that really emphasize, you know, this isn't working on the face mech on. And and I I just picked up that Mumkar was definitely going to be a face mech on. Yeah, um, it it was different because I, having played like that first section and then taking a year break, when I came back to it, I had kind of forgotten who Mumkar was and what his role was. Because he's literally like, he's just there for the five minute opening and then he dies. And you don't really think much of it afterwards. Um, and so when Metal Face starts talking, because he doesn't actually start talking until later in the game. Like, initially when the attack on Colony 9 happens, he's completely silent. So... 
uh, I was not really, uh, you know, bringing that character to mind when he was talking later on. Uh, and so it was like, it was this big surprise when at the end of Valak Mountain, you get down there and Mumkar just like pops out of his mech on. Um, uh, like, I had, like, even after seeing Fiora at Prison Island, I still hadn't put together that Mumkar was the one inside of uh, that, that face mech on, inside a metal face. So, yeah, it really got me. And I think. It kind of I, I appreciated that more because I hadn't like kept my nose in the game for a consistent amount of time. So, mm. yeah, uh, interesting stuff there. Uh, we should also maybe mention the intro because I think uh, it's it's super cool that they set up these three characters in Dunban, in Dixon, and in Mumkar, and you never kind of think at the start like how important they're going to be but like these are three characters that end up being so crucial to the end game in so many interesting ways um and uh i just thought it's neat that like they just start off as these three friends uh fighting the the mechon and like dixon turns out to be a million year old creature who was a disciple of zanza and then mumkar gets turned into uh, a mechon who isn't revealed until halfway through the game and dunban obviously like the wielder of the original wielder of the monado and then becomes like a crucial member of your team um yeah that I, I just thought that was cool yeah i think i think the characters are incredibly important but in terms of the beginning i think the setting in which they're in and like the way they're fighting um the mech on on um sword valley and the way yes. that i swear there's a shot where it pans it's either in or out i want to say out where it zooms out from them fighting on Sword Valley to like seeing the Bionis and the Maconis like opposite each other, and I just that intro scene like even if you have no interest in Xenoblade or anything, I'd highly recommend even just checking out that that first cutscene because it's just so epic, um, and I like how they give you a massive injection of epic before they do the whole. RPG standard thing of starting right back up. down to earth. Back we're in a, a little colony, small town yeah. with no weapons, and you've gradually build up that sort of thing. Um, so I'm glad they they stick you in the big end. Yeah, they kind of give you a taste of what's to come at the very beginning. Precisely. Um, and I especially think that beat pays off later when you finally make it to Sword Valley because it is like at least 50 hours in until you get to that area in the game. And when you do, it kind of has more like symbolic resonance of like man this was the the place where that battle took uh took place uh at the start of the game and you're like oh shit we finally made it to sword valley mm. uh which is it's cool it, it pays off in a very nice way um so then i guess let's maybe talk about uh prison island i think that's one of the next big ones unless you can think of something in between valley i mean we meet Not all our really. characters we get melia and ricky and um uh, dunban joins up and everything um and there's some cool areas i think like of the early areas gower plain certainly is the one that makes the most impact initially um and then i really like uh Aerith sea uh, when you finally make it there yeah, no, I, I think I agree, Gower Plain, and obviously with the Smash Brothers stage and everything, I was quite aware of this place, um, and it, it's just so big, like, it's kind of an obvious thing to say, but it is just ridiculously expansive, um, and mm. I agree, Aerith Sea is just, the way that Aerith Sea is below um, Alchemoth, and, and the way that Alchemoth and Prison Island sort of sit uh, juxtaposed to each other with Aerith Sea below. I just think that is the coolest area in the game. It's really neat. Uh, I wouldn't say it's my favorite. I'd say the the Fallen Arm is probably my favorite area in the game. 
Ah, uh, yeah, no, good point. That's that might be mine as well. Yeah, but um, yeah, Aerith Sea is pretty wonderful, and we talked in the past how I swam across the whole thing. But oh boy, hey, look, I don't regret it. It was uh, it was an experience of just absorbing and really getting a sense of how fucking huge the world is, uh, because that takes a long time, really does. Um, so the stuff that happens at Prison Island then is is pretty big because uh, you have uh, Melia's father who uh, basically unleashes Zanza onto the world again. He opens up the tomb, and you see this giant inside. I think the interesting thing about it is, like, you don't learn until later that this giant isn't actually Zanza. Like, the giant started out as Arglas, that was his name, and he was friends with Egil, and they had this whole relationship going, and then at some point, and they don't really explain how it happened, but Arglas finds the Monado, and uh, Zanza basically takes over his body, and uh, that's how the whole fight between uh, the Mechonis and the Bionis begins. Uh, because initially, like, it's pretty peaceful. Like, they, the two of them coexist, and the peoples coexist, and it seems like more of a friendly affair, but uh, eventually it, you know, crashes down and everything goes to shit so and and the way um, that the story is set up at this stage um zanza is seen as like the good guy like he, yes he is he's god like he's offering you a way out he's like release me from these chains shulk whatever and i can i can help you and all this and the eggle is basically as, power like, up the, the monado to its second level essentially exactly so you're it always feels fishy but you're kind there's nothing to suggest that what Zanza wants to do is evil in any way or anything. I think that that happens after the cutscene um, has taken place. After you've... Uh, do you fight Metal Face on top of uh, Prison Island? I can't remember. Yeah, I think I you f- might have a sh- short fight. Don't you fight Fiora? Uh, no, I don't think you do. You, okay. you fight Metal Face, I think, on top of Prison Island. But um, No, because then she comes in later to stop it and be like, no, don't do this. Um, right. And... Uh, uh, yeah, so I think after all that stuff has happened, then you see um, Zanza coming back into... Well, well, he's stabbed through the heart by the giant spear that Metalface throws down. And um, and then he, like, disappears, but then you hear his voice again, and, like, Alvis is there, and they're both kind of talking to one another, and Zanza's, like, laughing. Um, and I think that's when they start to set up the fact that maybe this guy isn't what he seems initially. Mm. Um so, yeah, it's all it's all cool. But it also starts, like, the downward spiral for Melia and just bad shit happening to her, which I think, like, out of all the characters in this game, she is the one who we can be the most sympathetic towards, I feel. Like, fucking everything goes wrong for her. Like, her entire people turn into monsters, her father is murdered, her brother is turned into a monstrosity that she has to kill, like, she doesn't end up being with Shulk in the end. Yeah. It's just, like, a bad time for Melia, the whole game. Yeah, it's... I definitely agree, you, you sort of do feel the most sorry for her, and I think the whole idea of um, the... Now, what are they called, that race? The, the, the elven equivalent... Uh, the Hyentia. The Hyentia, exactly. I, I, you. That's such a a strange moment when you find out later that they all turn into um, t- telethia. telethia. Yeah. Uh, like that is just so creepy and like, and and obviously it's so important that Melia is sort of half half Homs, which means she doesn't get affected by that. Um, yeah. yeah so it's let's just weird. 
So let's talk about that quickly then, because that is kind of a crucial story point in that the high end tier seem to know that one day this stuff is going to happen. Like it's either been written down in scriptures or something um, that they need to dilute their bloodline because otherwise, like all of their uh, children are going to end up turning into these monstrous beasts. And like the only way to kind of save their race is to uh, dilute it down. And then you have that kind of almost racism coming in with like the high entia who think that they should keep it pure, kind of like in Harry Potter, how you have like the mudbloods and everything. Yeah. And um, they want to be like pure high entia as opposed to like making them uh, sub human not subhuman but sub hyentia in this case yeah. almost uh so that is an interesting point there mm. um uh but i feel like that whole prison island stuff is it's kind of the halfway marker in the game and it, a lot of it is built up to that point um and i just think like that's where big revelations happen uh, and i totally love that they show you fiora and she just doesn't recognize anyone and she's just basically being taken over by Maynith at this point um and uh yeah it's it's interesting because it it answers questions but then it just produces so many more um what, what were your feelings overall on just like this section of the game Bally? um it was kind of like i mean i must have been over 30 hours i guess if it's halfway for me it was roughly 40 hours 30 hours or so so i just thought like come on game i've, I've given you my time i need some answers now and it like you said it did give me plenty of them uh, but again like you said it just it like confused me in so many ways as to like what was gonna happen to that giant uh what on earth was happening with fiora uh like where am i even going next was like the main question because like yeah. um Alchemoth seems like such a final sort of um, destination. Uh, right, and it kind of feels like this is... Because the main crux of the first half of the game is revenge. Like, it's a revenge story of Fiora is dead, I want to make the people who did this pay, and Shulk is just 100% driven by rage and like anger at that stuff. And so it does seem at that point that you're going to take on Metalface and defeat him and kind of end that plot, and you almost do. You don't actually get to fight Metalface or... or kill him that is until later but uh then fiora comes along and you're like oh shit maybe like we need to take another step here and um and then it kind of turns into more of the saving the world arc uh as things go crazy because it's a jrpg and of course everyone has to eventually save the world because that's what they're built on so yeah um, no and <laughs> The thing with this, and it's almost like Lord of the Rings Return of the King, you know, it feels like yeah. there are about eight endings and you're yes. just constantly <laughs> like, aha, I finally found the master of everything, I must defeat them, and then, oh, nope, nope. And it just kind of it keeps zooming out further and further until the very end of the game and like you're just fighting one final boss after another, not knowing mm -hmm. who's controlling who and what, what the what the crux of what's going on actually is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I feel like then the next kind of big moments are when you get through Sword Valley and you find Fiora and uh, Egil confronts you in his his giant uh, Mechon Valley. Would you like to tell us the name of this giant Mechon for everyone? Oh, Yal uh, Yeah. Well, well done! Nailed it! Nailed it! <laughs> nailed it. Finally uh, gets that name right. Uh, so yeah, um, Egil comes along and is, is Mechon and... Uh, 
shit goes down, like everything blows up, and um, you know, uh, actually before this point, the the team manages to take out Mumcar, although they don't want to. Like Shulk is almost going to kill him, and then everyone's like, "No, Shulk, you don't, don't give in to this rage. Like, just let him be." And uh, he ends up like dying anyway because it falls down, and he falls to his death down below. And here's a really neat touch, by the way, which I had no idea about until Chugger Conroy pointed out in his Let's Play, is if you're on the fallen arm and you're wandering around, there is a huge um, junk of metal which has fallen there, and it is Metal Face. He is like you actually see him on the ground there, like destroyed. Uh, oh, wow! Really? It's super cool. Yeah, yeah. So that's in that's there. That's, really that's cool. on the fallen arm, um, which is awesome. So yeah. Anyway, you you end up falling down to the fallen arm, and this is where they kind of split people off, and everyone goes in their little groups. But Fiora comes back. You finally get to play as Fiora again, uh, and that is a very cool moment. Um, I I really like that, and pairing that with the fact that you get to this new area, and it's just um, it's super different. Uh, and you also finally get to meet the race of Mekonis because at this point, like they haven't introduced the people of of that uh, that region yet. Uh, all you know is the robots, and you kind of think like, is is that the only things that live over there? These mechanical things, mm. um, but no, uh, the um, Machina, the Machina are the people of Mekonis, and uh, you finally get to meet them. Uh, what do you think of them and, and their role in the story, Bally? They're so important because. The whole story up to this point is like, oh, the pe- everyone on Mechon is like evil, and all of the people you've seen from there are machines. And you're like, they're mechanical, they're evil, you know, th- this sense of other. And then the Machina are almost like this bridge between the two because they're not completely Mechon, uh, they're like an actual race of homs like people you know they're, they're, yeah they're, they, they have they're like biological than... similarities in ways exactly so. they're, they're more human than the mechon and it's sort of reaching out and it's kind of they come at the same time as when you start learning that actually not everyone um on the mechonis is evil and that they you kind of learn about what they're trying to do um mm. and how eggles aims actually aren't what they're cracked up to be Right, and uh, you know, you meet uh, you meet his father, who is Mikol. Um, and we should also mention, like, uh, while all this is going on, like, Dixon is slowly, like, weaving his way in. Like, uh, there are moments, like, Satoral Marsh, I think you've said before, is, like, the first yeah. moment where Dixon, like, shows his hand as maybe not having the greatest of motives in the world. And uh, he, like, says some snide comment, and you start thinking, hmm, I wonder what's up with this, this Dixon guy. And then, like, Dixon appears later on to, like, sell you stuff, and he appears uh, when you meet Mikol, and he's like, oh, hi, Mikol, my old mate. And you're like, wait, why does Dixon know this guy. How did? How has Dixon been here before? Like all these questions, um, and obviously they get answered later. But uh, I just thought that was an interesting little moment there. So then, of course, we make our way over to Maconis itself. Which, uh, Bali, did you think that you were ever going to go there? Because you know everyone says about this game, if you can see it, you can go to it. And I should say, like one of the coolest parts about Xenoblade is like seeing the different parts of the world from. Uh, where you are and it being like logically spaced away from one another like when you're on the Bionis you can see the Mechonis like looming over you the whole time and all that stuff um, did you think that you would eventually end up going there? Yeah I I, I did because I thought we would go to Sword Valley at some point and obviously that's like the link between the two um, yeah. so I, I did. Uh, I didn't expect that you'd you know fall down and then make your way up from it's 
leg, I guess, um, from sure. the fallen arm and stuff. I think that's really cool. Um, and yeah, it, it's awesome that you can kind of see how, like, you can the spatial awareness of the whole world is so accurate. Hmm. It is. Uh, it's it's very neat. Um, and uh, I do have to say that, like, McConnus generally, I don't find that interesting in terms of the areas that you have to traverse through. Um, a lot of it looks the same and like sounds the same, um, and just you have all these lush locations on Bionis, and this is just like the stark, stark opposite. Um, I really found myself pushing as quickly as I could just to kind of get to the end of these sections because they were fine, but like I just didn't find them interesting visually uh, as much anyway as previous stuff. So, no, I agree, and I was kind of like. The the cutscenes were coming so thick and fast on top of um, everything else at that point in the game that you're kind of just wanting to know what's going to happen at the end and like you're just dying for a bit more story. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, we uh, kind of make it to the top to Agniratha. Um, Gado pops up and uh, all that stuff happens. He ends up like saving them uh, when Egil decides, hey, let's let's try and destroy the Bionis and have this fight with it. Um, and crazy stuff goes on Sword Valley like gets destroyed and there's a horrendous scene of like all these people just falling off the sword like it is it's pretty dark that stuff it's like Mm. you know they are all like just dead straight up Um, but all these bodies like falling is ugh it's it's a horrible uh, situation I guess Um, and like you have the assembled forces of uh, like the Hyantia and the Homs and everyone coming together uh, with that like final battle and that final push over with Kalyan and everything um, and Alvis, we haven't even mentioned Alvis yet but god, Alvis throughout the whole game is just this weird enigma who just continues to pop up and you're like what is he doing, what are his motives What's you know, what are his thoughts and everything um, but yeah, I uh, I don't know what you, you were thinking about Alvis uh, if you had any theories while you were going through Bally well, I think they kind of set him up like he's going to be some sort of bad guy um, yeah, and then I guess it's not until the very last minute um, of the whole game, really. Well, a bit earlier than the yeah. final bit, but you kind of you kind of understand that he's not a bad guy. But then I think you don't find out what he actually is in terms of like being the computer until the end yeah. of the game. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's like kind of the last big reveal is that, and uh, it's a it's kind of a crazy one. <laughs> like this game goes fucking crazy places. Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, uh, it's I I do like all the stuff where Venea is telling you, or she like uh, you get to the top of Agneratha and you see the computer and it kind of lays out like what happened um, between uh, Egil and Arglas and how when the Bionis originally attacked Mekonis, like they lost so many lives and people died and like Egil has basically held this grudge against the Bionis for years and years and um, that's why all those attacks were happening on Colony 9 and everything and uh, yeah it's basically why they have been in a war situation since then so like initially you start out this game and you think okay it's just going to be the, you know these are the bad guys and we just need to kill them it kind of turns out that the Bionis was the big bad in the beginning like the place that you live the guy who rules that place is really the evil one and he is uh, he's kind of the shithead and uh, you kind of you understand the motivation as to why Egil is doing what he's doing 
which I think is nice to kind of justify the villain in that way. In any case, uh, they then basically like run away and then go back to the top, uh, destroy all the machinery, and um, and then you finally have Dixon coming into play and being the betrayer uh, as, as Shulk like fights Eggle and then finally finishes him off, um, or almost does. Uh, like they, they almost come to an agreement of like being peaceful in the end, and then Dixon just has to fuck it all up by coming in here and shooting Shulk. And then Shulk kind of dies, and, and it turns out this whole time that Zanza has been residing inside Shulk's body, um, and he is basically coming out of the Monado, and he appears, and shit goes down. Maynith comes out of Fiora, they fight, it's fucking crazy. This is just like one of those big chunks of the game, Bally, where story just hits you in the face, and you're like, okay, wow, let's slow down a second, there's a lot happening here. Um, how do you yeah. feel at all, all these revelations? It's it's the fact that there's all these awesome revelations with these incredible fights, like uh, fights in the cutscenes. I mean, like between, um, well, I guess it's Zansa and um, God names, names, names. Maynith. Maynith between Zansa yeah. and Maynith, and it's, it's like Shulk and Fiora just like flying around, just fighting each other. I just think that's such a cool cutscene. And you've got Tragic Decision playing in the background oh, of it. And, oh, it's just, it's great. Like, because it's these two gods basically just duking it out. And uh, it's just insanity. It's like, this is like where you would imagine most games would end. But this like still isn't even that for, for Xenoblade. It's yeah, like, exactly. uh, they go even further. So, um, absolutely. Um, but did you foresee Dixon pulling this move and betraying people? Uh, had you built up that expectation to this point? That, that yeah, was, definitely. Was There's something, there was something shifty about Dixon all the way from Satoral Marsh. So, yeah. yeah. But it, he literally does nothing shady up until that point. So between I mean he kind of pushes everyone into the direction that they need to end up in like I feel yeah he wants Shulk to kind of in a almost Jedi Sith like way like with the Emperor and Luke at the end of Return of the Jedi like to fulfill his destiny and give in to the rage and murder Egil you know and yeah. then maybe uh, he could ascend to become Zanza you know by doing that but he chooses not to he chooses like the human route and as a result Dixon has to show up and be like ah oh, you made the wrong choice kid and just fucking shoots him uh, which is it's great, like, because you basically fight this boss, which seems like it's the final boss, and then you're like, nope, there's a there's a lot to come still. This this game doesn't end uh, when when it should do. Uh, maybe one might say <laughs> if you think the JRPGs are too long, but uh, I totally loved it. I thought it was just uh, a great moment, uh, great great stuff happening there. Uh, and then I guess if we just like move through to the end, like you go through the Bionis's core and fight the worst boss in the game, Lorathea, who's dick she's terrible um yeah that that fight sucked uh, is she really is bad. she basically another one of zanza's helpers yeah so there are two disciples uh they are dixon and uh Lorothea. Um, okay. so they're kind of like uh his two henchmen almost um which is interesting that they're both placed in different races um and like if you take a look at the three of them like arglas is a giant Lorothea is a Hyentia and Dixon is a Homs. Um, kind of 
Apart, I guess there's no Nopon representation, which would Theory be funny me. if there was. Tut, tut. Like, imagine, like, if if the the elder of the Nopon village had also turned out to be a disciple yeah, of Zanza. Yeah. That would have been hilarious. I do think, like, they steered away from using Nopon um, just for the fact that they are kind of silly and it would have maybe undercut the serious tone. It would be like an Ewok being a Sith Lord. Yeah, almost would be, actually. No, yeah, that's a good, that's a good analogy They're definitely here, like the Ewoks, yeah. Yeah, um, but then like uh, obviously you fight Dixon, beat him, uh, and then you're just in space. You're literally in the Milky Way, and as you walk through and fight all these bosses from your past, you go past planets like Venus and then Mars, and like eventually you get to the end. But what like what was going through your head then when you were like literally in the Milky Way, Bally? Did you think like is what what is going on here, or uh, what are your thoughts at that point? It's interesting because this is the first link you have to like our universe and planet earth yes and like so that was always like hmm what's going on here is there going to be some grand link to uh the real world at the end of this um and once i finally defeated the final boss i found out Uh (laughs) uh-huh yeah so yeah so um you beat Zanza after 10 hours, uh, if you're Bally, and uh, uh, you discover that the whole universe that you currently reside in with the Mechonis and the Bionis is a universe that was created as a result of scientists in our universe, being the Milky Way, experimenting and trying some science thing that goes horrifically wrong and basically destroys our universe and creates a new one. And the two scientists that you see on the ship are uh, Zanza, who I think is called Klaus, um, and you see Maynith there at the same time. And Klaus is the one who wants to uh, basically push the experiment on and be like, yes, we must do this. And then Maynith's like, no, don't do it. So you can already see there that their two character traits are being displayed as to what they all eventually So the real like. world is actually destroyed. I didn't realize that. I, th- I believe like the universe is destroyed and a new one is created. Um, and that's why, like, they. Uh, as I knew the that happened. Who but I thought that. I thought that happened irrespective of the universe Earth is in. What do you mean, irrespective of the universe? Earth so is I in? thought that their experiment created this other universe, and then at the end of the game, the world of Xenoblade, as in the Bionis and the Reconis, uh falls in on itself and another world is created but earth earth the universe of earth etc still remains no i don't think so i believe that the universe with earth is just destroyed um really? and uh Jeez. yeah i believe so because like the whole how's universe how is it how is it going to link to x then right well that's, that's the thing we'll talk about that later but <laughs> um <laughs> i uh i i feel like it is just a ridiculous crazy plot twist but i love it like it's this whole game don't forget you Alvis. never expected right no we'll, we'll do that but this whole game you never expected uh for it to link into like our own reality in any sense and then the way that it does it is just fucking like it's bonkers because i had just been hearing for years on rfn of like they kept talking about how stupid and ridiculous the ending was i was like really i can't be that crazy right and then you find out, and you're like, well, okay, yeah, well, they did. They took some crazy pills over at Monolith Soft because they made this thing happen. Um, it was uh, it's pretty magnificent. So uh, I think, like, the final kind of message of the game almost is 
is a theological one, right? Where Shulk is given this decision by Alvis, who we now know is basically the computer from the ship that they uh, did the experiment from. And as a result, Alvis is kind of... He doesn't take sides throughout the game. Like, because he is kind of this mechanical, abstract thing, he doesn't have, like, motive of his own. And so he has to rely on the input of others. And as such, he says to Shulk at the end, like do you want to uh, have a universe where you rule and you set the laws and you are the god, basically, or do you want to just have a universe without them? And Shulk, basically, you know, he has his friends and they all talk to him and they're like, we don't need that. And they basically reject the notion of gods entirely, um, which may be some not-so-subtle hint from, you know, uh, the guys behind this game. Yeah, it's just like a massive... You know, middle finger to religion in many ways. Yeah. It's, it's saying, look, at, it's saying here was a world that was run by gods. Nothing good came of it. It was only bad. You now have the chance to create another world. Would you like gods? And he's like, no, I don't want gods. And it's all kind of like, wow, what a stark message <laughs> from yeah from motherless soft. Okay, right. Um, yeah, no, it's really interesting, and I think that final cutscene way that you do see them in the the new world as it were is all quite exciting because I know like all the races are like next to each other and stuff which is also nice yeah. sort of ending unifying message um which, it is. which is quite nice yeah everyone comes together in the end and um they have that song that plays over which I love I think it's a great uh final track and um yeah, it, it all kind of ends happily, and in the end, Fiora isn't really uh, a mech on anymore. She's like back to her normal body, which uh, you know that's good. Means that you know her and Shulk can you know procreate or whatever <laughs> later on. I guess and, so. Uh, and lead lead into Xenoblade X, I guess maybe if that's the case. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, it's uh, it's a great ending. It's it was like. It's certainly worth the uh, the push through uh, that final stuff. As much as I know you had difficulty, Bali, d- d- was it rewarding enough at the end to get all that that closure? It was rewarding enough, you know. I I would argue that maybe the end game has one too many twists and turns. Uh-huh. Uh, that there's maybe just that extra. It's, it's a real stack of bosses, to be honest. Um, especially um, what's the high entian. Uh, lady, what's her name? Lorothea. Lorothea, exactly. Like that boss, especially, uh, which is more renowned as a tricky boss than the final boss, even though I struggled more with the final boss. Um, yes. There's just one too many hoops to jump through, I feel, at the end. Um, and you're just dying to know what's going to happen. And the, the ending is worth it in the end. It is it, still really epic. And like we've al- already said, the creation of a new world and all this and. The, the extra song at the end which you've said is really nice and I agree it's one of the best songs in the game like um, I like how much they pump this game at the end after you know like an 80 hour 90 hour experience they say here we go you've made it here's a reward and they just unload the cutscenes on you yeah totally it's um, it's real cool real cool video game ballet um, and uh Apparently, there's going to be another real cool video game coming out soon. Xenoblade oh, uh, Chronicles X, the, the follow-up to this. Um, and we'll talk about like some of our thoughts on that and uh, answer some of your questions in the next segment. So uh, don't go anywhere. Uh, here's a nice Xenoblade song for you to listen to in the meantime. And uh, we will be right back. 
Alright everyone, welcome back to the Xenoblade Chronicles spoiler cast. Uh, we are here, uh, having discussed the plot of the game, and uh, we're now going to dive into some of your emails that you sent us, because uh, we put out the call a while ago, and uh, we've got a few emails regarding Xenoblade in particular. Uh, so Bale, how about we kick it off with the first one? Our first email is from Ryan. He says, Xenoblade Chronicles made its way to American shores around early 2012, and I picked it up as soon as it hit stores. Luckily, that was before GameStop started putting used copies up for $90. Shortly after putting the game into my Wii, I was engrossed with the story, as unlike most RPGs, it starts off immediately in a combat situation. The game also thrusts you straight away into the story about Bionis versus Maconis, whereas most RPGs start a tad bit toned down in regards to prologue. Unfortunately, because I was so into this game, I tried doing all the quests and burned myself out around Aerith Sea and put the game down for a couple of months. Thankfully, I came back to it and was able to experience the phenomenal ending of the game. To try and wrap this up, the story is fantastic and full of touching moments as well as plot twists. The combat is more engaging than standard JRPGs, and when it starts feeling repetitive, the story throws a cutscene at you that makes you want to keep pushing forward in the game. The art side of the game is great as the soundtrack is absolutely amazing and the scenery of the game also looks stunning at the time for the system, although the character models are pretty lacking. There's always something to do in this game, whether it be quests or fighting optional bosses, and this has kept me playing the game for many years. The high point of this game for me will always be the characters and their funny interactions, and has sealed Xenoblade as my favourite JRPG to date. Sorry if that was all a bit lengthy, but I might as well ask a question while while I'm at it. What are your favourite characters and moments throughout the game? Sincerely, Ryan from Rochester, New York. Alright, Ryan. Uh, clearly has a lot of thoughts to get out there about Xenoblade. Um, I, uh, I can agree with a, a lot of the stuff he says. Um, I, I definitely also didn't I was like I don't feel like the side quest stuff is meaningful enough for me to like dive into and, and worth getting anything out of it so I didn't really put too much stock in it and it's very easy to see how people would get burned out on on things like that but um, I guess his question relating to characters and moments um, there are there are a lot of those throughout this game uh, Bali do you have any particular picks oh, or highlights a highlight of a moment oh so many so many um my favorite moments in that game were probably the parts where you discovered like new areas like new awesome looking areas um especially right. the fallen arm um uh gower plains um Aerith sea uh uh alchemoth i believe it's called as well yeah yes, i just think the city. those are some of my favorite areas and this, the moment you sort of discover how those areas interact with the story and the whole game i just thought was incredible uh, what about characters? Do you have any characters? Ooh, favorite character. Uh, we were saying this before we were recording, just how hilariously tropey Ryan, Ryan, I'm calling him Ryan, your name's Ryan, no. this guy's name <laughs> yeah. is Ryan, how massively tropey Ryan can be and just how hilarious he is. Um, I think he's pretty funny and I love the way that he constantly like puts his left hand on his right shoulder and like rotates his right shoulder backwards like twice. That's like an animation that it's they like consistently this, rely on yeah, throughout the game. And it just goes on throughout the whole game during cutscenes and it's just so funny. But I mean in terms of favourite characters, um 
it's got to be Dunban, you know. He's just he's such mm. a he's sort of the the wiser, older um, character. And there are a couple of moments like late on where he's wanting to do the more aggressive option, and you're, you're actually left quite surprised that he's not, you know more pacifist in his approach to certain aspects I found um, I yeah. believe I can't remember there's some other character holding him back saying like no we can't do that I think it's Shulk actually when he's trying to kill Mumkar yes that's what was happening and Dunban was like just kill him I think yeah and then, and then I think it was well the, fall, the thing falls in them or something doesn't it um, yeah saying. so the decision doesn't even have to be made in the end um, but it's yeah. in, an interesting moment what would you say your favorite character is? Um, I really liked Lady Maynith. Like, we don't get a huge amount of her, um, especially because she's kind of embodied through Fiora. Like, Fiora is uh, the vessel that she chooses to kind of lay her message through. But she is, like, she is the ultimate good in this universe, and she is the one who wants to make things right. And uh, I think her sacrifice is a very important part of that game. Um and uh, yeah, I just I, I kind of wish we got more of Lady Maynith because I think she's very interesting and uh, a super cool character. Um, I like Fiora as well. I think like Fiora coming back is is great stuff, and uh, that's really good. Um, uh, for moments, I have to kind of combine that with my favorite character stuff is like when Zanza and Maynith are having that crazy ridiculous fight through the sky. Uh, is a highlight, especially because of the music in the background and everything. Like that all just culminates in this ridiculous, insane thing that uh, I was a big fan of. So, uh, yeah, good stuff. But I mean, we we could we could do a whole podcast just about moments and just keep oh, talking absolutely. about those. Um, and hopefully, we touched on some of the big ones in the first segment. But um, sure, yeah, so many good ones. Um, absolutely. So our next email is from Paul. Hey fellows, I just finished Xenoblade Chronicles and I'm really excited to hear, hear you guys talk about it. As I'm finishing up, I'm left curious about a few things. And these are a couple of bullet points. Did you enjoy the Colony 6 rebuild quest? I found that it really kept me going at the end, drew, as the end drew nigh, but I found myself a bit underleveled for the last few bosses. Uh, Should we take these one at a time, so Bally? Let's go one at a time, yeah. Uh, so I did not really engage at all with the Colony 6 stuff. I tried to, uh, but I found that it was really hard to find or to look for the specific items, and I didn't know that it was eventually going to lead to anything that was worth my while. And having watched like Chugga Conroe play through and do everything related to Colony 6, I feel like I didn't really miss out on much. Like, there are some quests in but there. But you get, you get that stuff. shield, don't you? I think, isn't that quite important? Like, that Monado What arc? shield? I believe that so the shield you get through the normal story protects you from physical attacks, right? But you unlock another shield that you use through the Monado um, that blocks you from like special attacks or ether attacks. Really, I yeah. don't remember that. I th- I know that there's another uh, hidden Monado art that you can yeah, that's, get that's probably that's it, doing I think, that. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's Monado Eater and there's another one. I can't remember which one it is, but I guess yes, you can get that potentially through doing the the Colony Six stuff. But 
it wasn't needed, I don't think, to beat the game, and um, I, I ended up not doing any of it. I think the one thing would have been nice is if I had the portable uh, gem crafting thing with me, uh, which I didn't end up getting because you have to get level 1 in Colony 6, and there is one specific item that Chugger pointed out was really rare, and you had to be at a specific point to get it, or whatever, and I just never ended up getting it, and I don't think you did either, Bally. So. Yeah, I, I found out about some of the Colony 6 stuff later, but never did any of it. Um, I, I've and I've said this before on the show, but I was I kind of mainlined Xenoblade Chronicles, um, and I think I I could maybe have done more exploration, more side stuff, but my playtime could have just gone to over 140 hours or so. And I know that's what yeah. so many people do do, but um, perhaps I could have tried that method of going through the game if I'd maybe taken a break. But I kind of plowed plowed right through the whole thing yeah. in a matter yeah. of two or three months really um, yeah. played an incredible amount so yeah I didn't bother with any of it I, I've i said this before and I'll say it again I do want to play this game again one day and like I, I think I'll try to explore a bit more take a slower pace uh, just maybe do it in the background more not make it like my main gaming priority or whatever but just something to do sure. in the background and just do that for maybe over the course of Oh God knows how long, like a year or something. <laughs> mm, uh, yeah, just, maybe. Just dip into it sometime. So I might go back to that. Um, right. Secondly, Paul wants to know if we were to drop any one area from the game, which one would we make vanish? Hmm, that's interesting. Um, I definitely think, for me, one of the areas in the Mekonis would have to go. Um, like I think I like Agniritha, and I think it's cool that you have the Telethia there, which are like frozen, and they act as like bridges and stuff in certain areas. That's super neat. But I think they needed to cut like one of the areas leading up to that, like whether it be the central factory or um, just the route beneath that. Uh, either one of those could go, but I think there was one too many um, similar-looking parts in the Mekonis, um, which I would get rid of personally. Yeah, I mean, I'd probably go for the fallen arm or something. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah no, 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 that, that's the that's probably the best. But I would agree with you, MBZ. Um, it's there's the end game is ever so slightly too long in my opinion. I just if they had cut one or two areas on the Mekonis, um I think it might be a bit of a it might be a slightly tighter, um, more fresh experience at the, at the end game. Um, for yeah. Me. Uh, and then there's final point from Paul is saying, I'm curious if you guys got into the skill tree, uh, skill tree slash skill link stuff, and if there's value there to you. Uh, not being a big RPG person myself, the mere idea of it intimidated me, and I found I was getting along fine without it. Cheers and keep up the great podcast, Paul. So I tried to do skill link stuff. I didn't really understand what I was doing, though. I didn't know if skills were always active on a character or if they had to be specifically linked to work. Like, I didn't fully understand the way that that system implemented itself and it didn't actually make a huge difference, I think, like, throughout the course of my playthrough. So... I kind of ignored it, but I did try to go to it every now and again to, like, tinker and maybe do something, but, like, with all those shapes and, like, having the shapes link, it was... 
I think I could have gone into the menus and read up on it, but I just wasn't bothered at that point. Um, I know, Bally, you definitely listened to all the tutorials and read up on stuff. Did you get into the skill link stuff at all? Uh, Not really. Maybe early on I tried to understand it and failed and then sort of gave up. Um, And that's the thing about this game. There were loads of RPG-related stuff that I really kind of... Uh, ignored and later in the game that was to my detriment because there were some simple stats I was definitely lacking in um, that helped would have well in the end did help me a great deal with some of the final bosses so and that's another reason that like I'd, I'd want to maybe try playing this game again is because there was so much stuff I left out uh, and having a solid understanding of how the skill links and that kind of thing works from an early stage could have been uh, quite beneficial to how I tackled the late game. So, yeah, I didn't on this run through, but who knows what the future um, might hold. True. And then Indeed. our final email is from Zvari in Kansas. Dear MBZ and Bally, I was first introduced to Xenoblade Chronicles last year when I watched an LP of the game. At the time, I thought that the game would always be expensive and hard to find, but now it is out on new 3DS and on the Wii U eShop in Europe. Now that the game is available, I plan on getting it, but which version should I buy? Most people agree that the Wii port is the superior version, but we don't know when it will be put on the American eShop. Is the Wii version worth the wait? Thanks, and keep up the great show. Well, it's cool because both of us played different versions of this game. Bali, you uh, having the new 3DS and uh, mm. me uh, on the original Wii. Um, Bali, would you have preferred to play this on a big TV um, as opposed to having the handheld? Uh, yeah, I think I think in general, had the Wii version been easily accessible for me, um, I would have gone for that one uh but it wasn't um and also i was looking it kind of hit me at a a convenient time because i've said on the show before i was looking to upgrade my original 3ds um and the new 3ds was coming out uh said you had just finished xenoblade chronicles um you'd recommended i played it then they announced that it was coming out on the new 3ds as like an exclusive like the only new 3ds game that there still is still the only new 3ds exactly which is weird um so i just kind of went for the whole thing i was kind of in a unique situation perhaps um i'd say most people wouldn't have been in my situation like if you own uh a regular 3ds xl uh, i wouldn't recommend picking up the new 3ds xl i don't think the jump is uh distinguishable enough between the two but on top of that like Xenoblade is all about exploration and open expansive worlds and in that aspect a big TV, the Wii version uh, hopefully the eShop version will come to the United States sometime soon um, that's the big advantage of it, the big screen um, the only, I mean the, the thing I would say about the new 3DS version is I probably would have completed the game way slower had I been on the Wii because there's right. something so simple and easy to just pick up and play an RPG on a handheld. RPGs and handhelds just go so well together. Um, And I I don't think the world looks bad in any way on the new 3DS. In fact, I think it looks really good. I think the 3D does look quite cool. Um, But I I guess you just don't get the same expansive sense of um, space uh, that you do with the Wii version. But um, 
like I've already said, when the Wii version does come to US, it'll be it'll be even cheaper than the new right, 3DS it's, it's version. Definitely, from a financial standpoint, the uh, the smarter option. Precisely. To go so um, I'd definitely go for the Wii one on the eShop when it comes out, as long as you can wait a few more months because they're being a bit funny about it at the moment. But who knows? Yeah, and as long as you're someone who doesn't travel a lot and like easy access to playing stuff at home consistently, then yeah, absolutely. Like I think the the one bonus of it being on the handheld is like if you are just busy all the time and like traveling around the world or whatever then you'll be able to finish this game without uh, any worry but um i think that's the the only benefit of uh, of the handheld one so yeah well uh, i think that's all the emails we have right bally indeed um so i guess we'll just have a quick chat about the new game xenoblade chronicles x uh, which is coming out very soon um what are our expectations, Bally? Uh, I know there's like been tr- loads of trailers, and a lot of the press have the game now. There's lots of video footage being out there. Um, have you been avoiding it? Uh, what is your kind of hype level for? I, my hype level is high. Um, in general, I've been avoiding stuff. I've seen a couple of well, there's been thousands of trailers, uh, right. and I've I've definitely seen most of those. I've not gone out of my way to look up Xenoblade X stuff and get feedback on who's been saying what. I know Austin Walker gave a few points a bit of feedback on Giant Beastcast. Uh, mm-hmm. There's been little bits here and there, but in general, I've been avoiding it. Um, I'd have to say the thing that I'm the most excited for is so, and this was one of my gripes with. Um, Xenoblade Chronicles is that the world is split up into like sub worlds where there are there are effectively gates and points you go through and then the whole that whole area will load up and I just the map just didn't sit well with me in the way that all the the uh, areas linked together. Um, I've already said this on the show before, but I just thought it was it kind of took you out of the action a bit to kind of. A reload the maps and like understand how they all link together. I don't think that that was done necessarily that great. And and part of the difficulty with that is that you are on a three dimensional um, beast. You know the Bionis Maconis are very. It's very hard to turn those into a flat map. Um, right, because they have limbs and like a head and like it's, yeah, it's not standard topography that you're dealing with. Exactly. So I'm quite looking forward to the fact that Xenoblade. Uh, Chronicles X is um, a standard top-down topography map, like you said, um, where as far as I'm aware, there aren't really many areas, if any areas, where you are going between uh, loading screens. I believe there's one long load to start the game, and then that's it, basically, which which I'm quite excited about. Yeah, having it be seamless and being able to go from one area to the other without having to load stuff up is super cool like that is it's gonna really expand that sense of exploration um in a much greater way and like these these areas just seem far larger like way way bigger and of course you have to be able to traverse them in the scales and still make it feel big so that's why they had to make the world like much much larger because otherwise like you could scoot around the world um in these giant mechs and uh not have it feel as large as, as it maybe should be but they took the precaution there and I, th- I think it was smart um do you have any thoughts on like where the story might go and how it Oof. links into the original ballet like taking well, the end of xenoblade in the way that like this new universe is created do you think that like the fact that they're leaving earth and that they're finding a new planet 
is this taking place in a universe where you know earth and everything has been reinstated by shulk and we're kind of back to the original universe but there are some differences because the races of um you know the bionis and the mcconis exist within this world yeah well well you're confident that at the end of chronicles uh that the real world universe was destroyed like earth yeah um so that would imply that because I know that the start of Xenoblade Chronicles X is that there that the human race Earth has come in the middle of you know two warring factions, and then that's like the reason where they have to like evacuate and go somewhere else, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I just, I just I don't think that Earth personally. I don't think Earth was destroyed in the first one, um, and I reckon. I mean, what if the new created world in um, Xenoblade Chronicles became like? What if that sort of situation with the races became soured, and then all of a sudden they had some sort of fight, and then that fight is the start of X or something? I I, I do think that there will be some sort of link, and I know that there's a lot of referencing, and I know that like the Nopon are in it. Um, mm-hmm. And like like the role that the scientist Klaus could play, I don't know. Like I'm really in- interested to see what could happen, or maybe X is just a one massive prequel. Yeah, like that, I reckon that is, that's, that's quite another a way of looking situation. at it, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, no, what do, what are you thinking? I I I'm not sure that it will intrinsically tie in to Xenoblade Chronicles. Um, I had hopes before that it might do, but it seems that maybe there won't be like an explicit link uh, or, or tie into the original story what i feel is more likely is that like a final fantasy situation we are retaining the themes and we're retaining like the races and those kind of things but there may not actually be any satisfaction in terms of hey this all combines together into one uh succinct package but I guess we'll have to wait and see. I'm sure the information about this is all already out there. I just haven't sorted out, and neither of you, so we yeah. don't know at this point. So this is us kind of spitballing on on those things. But um, yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. It's it's going to be just one of those games that over Christmas I fully dive into and try and just do as much as possible of, and um, just take my time with. I think I just want to you know have it go on as long as it needs to go on, and not necessarily. Um, tie myself down to like beating it in a certain time period and yeah i just i just want to kind of explore i just want to be in a world you know and yeah a lot of people this year have been talking I that mean... way about things like the witcher <laughs> and about fallout and like yeah. some of those worlds like for me the witcher was a world i just loved existing in and just being in for a long time um and i think xenoblade hits that same kind of vibe for me so have any of the Xeno Xeno I can say Xenoblade games Xeno games um linked in story before? I'm not sure. Um I, I don't know enough about uh the previous work uh on games like Xenosaga and uh Xenogears, I think. Uh have have uh I think they are tied together in some way, but it's more thematic than necessarily plot wise. Um but that'd be an interesting thing to look into. Um, I just I don't know enough about those older games uh, to really give any uh, coherent thoughts. But um, hmm. yeah, it's 
look, it's th- this is like one of those games that has been teased for so goddamn long, and I just kind of want to get to it at this point, Bali. Like, it's when did we first? I think see it's it? almost three years. Uh, I don't know, twenty twelve, maybe. E three twenty. 12? No, it was a Nintendo Direct it was revealed the in. Direct, right. Uh, when did Link Between Worlds come out? That was that year. Two years uh, ago. 2013. Today. Yeah. Jeez, oh my god, yeah, we're recording on the, the anniversary of Link Between Worlds. Yes. Um, so I think it was the beginning of that year was the Xenoblade first trailer, so... And that, man, and that was when time. we actually started the podcast as well. With Link Between Worlds, yes, it yeah, was, yeah. So. Um, so yeah, it's it's been a wait, uh, but it will be over very soon, and we'll get to play it. And I am really, uh, I'm really looking forward to this one, Bali. Oh yeah, like, and we're going to talk a ton about it on the podcast. I, I can tell yep. that. Yeah, uh, uh, I just, so I just can't wait to get to the mechs. Really, I know it's going to take a while, and I'm sure I'm going to enjoy every moment up to the mech. But I'm sure that once one of us gets a mech, we'll be telling the other one like, "You have to get it. You have to get it. Like, you yep. have to get, speed ahead and get to it." So, absolutely, um, exciting times. We will, uh, we'll be getting that game, playing it, talking about it, uh, and uh, yeah, I hope you guys uh, enjoyed this. I hope you'll uh, look forward to uh, coming stuff in the next few weeks. Uh, but that's pretty much going to wrap us up for the Xenoblade spoiler cast. Uh, Bali, where can people send us emails and things about more video games uh, if they want to talk to us about them? Send all your emails to thisnintendolife at gmail.com. That's thisnintendolife at gmail.com. Um, we're always running low. Uh, send in more. We always appreciate them. Absolutely. Uh, you can also find us in different places on the internet. You can find me on Twitter at LordNBZ. Uh, I'm LordNBZ on Miiverse. And um, I'm sure that we'll be posting some lovely vistas and screenshots of, of Xenoblade X when that finally hits. So uh, keep an eye out on that. I've got to, I've got to get going with my, my pre, preload download. Oh, you do indeed, Bali. Um, where can people find you on the internet to hear all the latest gossip about uh, download times on your Wii U in Brussels? <laughs> um, you can find me at Ballyman91. That's B-A-L-L-Y-M-A-N-9-1. It's also my name on the Miiverse, where I've been com- commenting about some Super Mario Maker levels and um, yeah. thing- things like that. Uh, so yeah follow me there and remember to follow the podcast on Twitter as well it's at TNL podcast that's at TNL podcast Uh, that's the number one thing and the place to follow if you want to find out when the latest episodes are out um, and any other things that we might be doing indeed Um, that is pretty much going to close us you can find the show on iTunes you can find us on Stitcher YouTube all the usual places Uh, we'll be back uh, I guess in a a week uh, because this is like an off episode uh, it's an extra episode we'll be back with episode 54 yes indeed so uh, look out for that uh, very soon but until then thank you all for listening and uh, we'll see you next time goodbye Searched all night and day But when I 
selections in today's show were all from Xenoblade Chronicles, the first being Engage the Enemy, the second being Tragic Decision, and the third being Beyond the Sky. All copyright Nintendo 2012. 